Good morning, everyone. I was pleasantly surprised at how cool it was in the shop this morning. I have to say, if you know me, you know I am not wired for July and August. I am a 12 months of November, please kind of guy. And this is very comfy in here. If you want to turn in your Bible, we are right at the end of our series in 1 Timothy. So turn in uh, 1 Timothy 6, and we will be covering the last 11 verses from 11 uh, through 21. So 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21, once you're there, then uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. All right, these are the words of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and to Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So I want to, first of all, give a sketch of what we're going to be doing in the next little bit. This is our last sermon in 1 Timothy uh, and so that will be the end of our first preaching series. For the summer months, we are going to be moving into the Psalms. I think it's a good pattern to alternate Old Testament and New Testament, so we get a good diet of both. So over the summer months, we are going to do uh, 10 Psalms, a decade of Psalms, uh, and then get back into a New Testament passage come fall. Uh, and we are hoping to have some of our homegrown young guys uh, flex their preaching muscles this summer as well. So you can be in prayer for that. Um, and we're looking forward to that. <clears throat> last Sunday, we looked at the first half of this last chapter, where we had instructions on being content. And in particular view were bond servants or slaves or kind of the blue-collar type of uh, people who were to be content with the station and with the circumstances in which uh, God had placed them. And Paul contrasts sound Christian living apart from the lives of the false teachers and the kind of future that they had envisioned. So where the false teachers were looking to set themselves apart from Orthodox Christian teaching and hopefully get a financial advantage from it, the Christians are instructed by Paul through Timothy to persist in godly living and true contentment. And so we saw last week that Paul is coming in for a landing at much the same place that he started this epistle. There's instructions on sound doctrine, on godly living, and what to do in the face of false teaching. And this is right where this book opened. 
Specifically, for us to understand and for us to obey, we need to grasp an image of the glory of God, which is both the source and the end of all Christian teaching and all Christian living. Uh, understanding and seeing God for who he is and then living in light of that for eternity, living in light of the God who is there, is both the foundation for Christian living and it's also the goal of Christian living. It's both. It's the fuel and the destination. And we're going to see that in greater depth here this morning as well as Paul brings it to a final close here. In verse 11 he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And so we've already seen last week a description of the life as the false teachers would make it in the church. And in verse 4, you see the picture. It involves controversy, quarrels, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction, depraved minds, and people who are deprived of the truth. That's the future following the false teachers. And you see that belief uh, and action really can't be separated. People talk about head versus heart as though these two things are opposed to one another, but they really aren't. They're connected. Uh, And if you want to see what somebody really believes, watch the way they live. These things will get consistent with time. What we think about something will filter down into our actions and the way we live our lives. And you see that that's why the church, uh, with false teaching, turns into a mess. Because heart and head are, in fact, attached. it makes sense that false teaching does lead to self-indulgent living. And God's final judgment is really him just affirming for eternity the pattern that we were already set on before that. In the final judgment, at the end of history, we become what we are now in the process of becoming. So if your life is noted as a life of sanctification, of killing sin and growing in godliness... That process gets finalized at the final judgment. You, you go on to your reward to enjoy God forever in his new created heavens and earth. However, the life of self-indulgence, the life of the false teachers, of indulging sin, denying godliness, that future turns into God's final verdict that this is who you are going to become. And one description of hell that I think is accurate is that in hell we have to do everything we want to do. And there's no restraint on what you want to do. There's no restraint. It's just pure envy, pure hate, with no breaks for eternity. That's not a future we want. And so that's not a future we need to be in the process of creating. We need to be moving in the other direction. If self-indulgence would satisfy, we'd expect that the most self-centered people we'd know would be the happiest, right? But is that the case? And and picture a family with a young child, a young two-year-old or a young three-year-old, where there's no discipline... Uh, Is that child who has become the head of this home, is that a happy child? Never. That's never a happy child because he doesn't know discipline. All he knows is self-indulgence. He is God and that will not satisfy. He's, He's taking a job that's far too big for him. And that doesn't change when we're adults. A life of self indulgence cannot satisfy. It will not. It just leads us further and further inward and we find that there's no bottom there. And so this is why the lifestyle that we are in the process of cultivating right now is so important. Right now counts forever. What you are thinking, what you are doing this very moment and later this afternoon, even in the mundane things, that will count forever before the face of God. 
So after Paul describes the life of, the life of false doctrine and of self-indulgence, then he lays out a clear alternative to Timothy. And Timothy is told to flee these things. And so the fact that Paul calls him a man of God actually underscores the importance of how he conducts himself. He is calling Timothy by the title that he has, how God sees him. And now in light of that, man of God, now live like a man of God. You are this, now be consistent with this. God has said it, now you work in light of that declaration. Not only is he to flee evil, but he is to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And it's important to note here the twofold significance of turning away from one thing and turning towards another thing. We talked about that last week. Uh, This is why faith and repentance are are really, in, in one sense, they're the same thing. When we turn from one thing to another, we're both turning away from the other thing, but we're turning towards something. And repentance is turning away from sin, turning away from the old person that we are in Adam, and faith is turning to Christ, turning to the new Adam. It's the positive side, repentance is the negative side, but it's the same motion. You can't turn away from something without at the same time turning to something else. And this is why faith and repentance must go together. You can't have one uh, without the other. And in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, it is not enough for us to just try to just extinguish evil, to just try to kill sin without turning to something else. Right? Nature abhors a vacuum. A vacuum is not a stable thing. Something is going to come in and fill that space. Okay? And this is why Jesus warns us in Matthew 12 about, you remember the parable of the, the empty house, right? You, you clean it out, you sweep it, and this demon leaves. And if it's empty, he'll come back, and the, the, the former state of affairs is worse than the first, because nothing has filled that spot. Uh, and for us who are uh, living this life, trying to be sanctified, trying to put sin to death, it's important that we don't just try to uh, shout at the darkness. We have to fill that space with something. If you're trying to extinguish sin in your life, Fill that place with something else. We have to fill it up or else the sin will just want to come back in. So we need to fill it with, you know, whether that's music, whether that's Bible reading, whether that's spending time with Christian friends and and, and encouragement, whether it might be something so simple as going on a run when you're struggling against a certain temptation. Go lift weights. go, Go do something productive. Pray. Fill it with something positive. This is the only way we are going to get lasting victory over sin is to push it out with the fullness of God's spirit in our lives. And so just like the repentance and faith at our justification, now we have a similar picture in our sanctification. Flee sin negatively and pursue righteousness positively. And then verse 12 goes on. It says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in my presence in the presence of many witnesses. And so Paul continues on with his athletic imagery, which we've seen before. And here the image of fighting comes up. And maybe you picture this as a wrestling match, maybe as a boxing match, maybe even a bare-knuckle fist fight. Either way, there's a fight. There's a real contest that's happening here. Fleeing sin and pursuing righteousness are difficult work. And nobody said it would be easy. The Bible doesn't promise it would be easy. But we do know that anything worth doing will come with difficulty and setback. And in this case, with our spiritual lives, the exhaustion and the tiredness and the weariness that can come with fighting sin is so worth it. Right? And so we've we've talked about the the image of gym partners. You know, if you go to the partner go to the gym with your partner and he's gonna bark at you and, and get you to push out one more rep. And then once you've done that, just do it again. 
right? And once you've reached your goal, you've seen how small the effort was relative to what you have in the end. Or think of the hockey coach who skates his players one more lap, and they want to stop, and their legs are hurting, but he says one more lap. Why? Well, not just for the sake of enjoying pain, but for the sake of what lies ahead. You guys will be better if you go through the work. Or maybe a husband who's trying to coach his wife through childbirth, telling her, you know, just one more, just one more. And I don't know how many times the nurses told Tanya when Katie was being born, just one more time, they weren't telling the truth because it was several one more times. But this is how it works, right? It takes effort. It takes effort. But once you hold that baby, it's all worth it. You see that the effort was really small relative to the prize. And for us as Christians, our prize is to see God as he is, to enjoy him forever. Okay? And we know that sin and iniquity cannot exist before his holy face. And so uh, when he makes us clean, we have to start living in light of that. The prize is worth it. Seeing God for who he is, enjoying him forever is so worth it. And we will see how small these earthly trials really were in light of eternity. So Paul is encouraging his young student, his young pastor, to keep fighting. Keep putting in the work. Keep pushing yourself with a view to the prize that awaits at the end of it all. And notice he's not just whipping Timothy up into some kind of emotional frenzy here. There's an actual fight, and he's honest about it, right? This isn't some kind of rah-rah speech uh, like at an Amway convention. I don't even know if Amway's still a thing, but... If it's not, Amway was multi-level marketing and people would go to these conventions and they'd get all pumped up and then they'd come back uh, all pumped up. And this, this isn't that. This isn't just pumping people up with fluff. It's acknowledging there's a real fight. You're going to actually have to put in the work. But then, this is one of those passages here when he, when he gives it a rationale for the, what underlies this fight, why the fight is worth it, why we keep going, Uh, even despite how difficult it really is, he gives the rationale here. Paul tells Timothy to take hold of the eternal life. And let's look at that. Before Timothy is converted, he already possesses uh, eternal life in one sense. Uh, Because eternal life is an objective reality that is not owing to anything that we do, but it's one of the gifts that God gives us by sheer grace when he breathes spiritual life into us at our rebirth. And so at that moment of spiritual rebirth, that's when conversion happens. Uh, God places eternal life onto him before, and I shouldn't say before his conversion, but before he has any uh, chance to work at sanctifying himself, before he has any chance to work at becoming more holy, God gives him eternal life by sheer grace at his conversion, at his rebirth. And the instructions here aren't for him to fight in order to get eternal life, but to fight in light of eternal life. So Timothy already possesses eternal life in an objective sense because it was given to him by grace. But now he's told to take hold of it. So he has the responsibility to live in light of a new spiritual reality. God gives the Christian eternal life, and with that gift comes the desire and the ability to act according to this new reality. So the fact that Timothy did nothing to get the gift of eternal life is underlined in the fact that Paul talks about this in language of gift. He says, in terms of God's action, he says, you were called to this. So the calling is something that God does, and he also does this through his Holy Spirit. And we see, and how many times do we have to see in the Bible uh, that conversion isn't something we can pull off? Coming to Jesus in faith isn't something that we can whip ourselves up into. 
Right? This, this too is a gift of grace. Jesus says in John 6, 37, he says that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then further in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. So even our coming has to be animated, it has to be motivated by the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. This isn't something we can whip up. Unless there's any doubt, in the opening verses of John 1, in 12 and 13, talks about our spiritual rebirth, And it says here, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How much more do we need the Bible to tell us that our rebirth is not the result of something we did? Okay, we need the Holy Spirit even to get to that point. The rebirth must come first, and then we choose and we act according to that new desire, that new heart. And so this is just like the resurrection of Lazarus, which was intended as a picture of spiritual rebirth. Okay? Lazarus's resurrection was not brought about by Lazarus pushing and Jesus pulling. This wasn't a 50-50 cooperative effort, and it wasn't even a 99 and 1 cooperative effort. It's 100% Christ. Okay? If this were a cooperative effort, then the final glory in our salvation would come to us. Because we had the last, uh, we, we completed the last step of our conversion, and so therefore we would uh, get the glory. But Ephesians 2 8 and 9 is likewise clear here that it says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the language here, we won't go into that because we're not in Ephesians. Uh, But the language for the gift includes the faith. The grace, the faith, the salvation, all of it is gift. So faith isn't something we produce through positive self-talk. It's not something we can drum up. It's part of the gift of salvation is the faith that connects us to Christ in itself. And it's a gift, not a cooperative effort, lest we could boast. All we do is respond in gratitude. So, just again, like Lazarus, Even though the rebirth, the coming back to life, the breathing of life into Lazarus is not a cooperative effort, but once Lazarus is awake, it's really him who has to act. It's really Lazarus who has to walk out of that grave when Christ calls him. And so this is what it uh, looks like to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So you can see that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility aren't enemies with each other. The same thing is in view here, right? In the same uh, passage that it's saying that this is all grace. You were called to this life, but now there's instructions. But you, Timothy, you have to do this. You are responsible uh, to do this. And so we see uh, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, however many questions we may have about that, are clearly not enemies. They are friends. So the message here is clear. Eternal life is ours, but now we must take hold of it. We We need to start living in light of this new reality. And the verse further describes in part what it looks like to take hold of this life when Timothy talks about making the good, or when Paul talks to Timothy about the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's able to make this confession in front of witnesses because he is, in fact, spiritually alive. He's not just going through the motions. He's not just saying something with his mouth, but the words of his mouth are consistent with the change in his heart. He has the boldness to publicly profess the good news of the gospel in his life. And then moving on in verses 13 through 16, it says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, 
and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So as we've seen in the pattern, Paul isn't just barking out a brute command to be obeyed, but he's giving the rationale behind it. And isn't it the case uh, that obedience is more natural and it's more heartfelt when we understand what's being asked of us? Right? It's not just, well, Dad said. Okay, well, maybe Dad said is a good enough reason. But when we understand why Dad said it, what this is accomplishing, suddenly now our hearts can be involved in this work as well because we understand how it fits into the big picture, into the global scheme of things. So it's our job as Christians, and it's our mission as a church, uh, to make sure that Christians understand what we believe and why we believe it. Those are both important things. Why do we believe what we believe? Trying to get the full sense out of Scripture. And so here, again, Paul isn't just telling Timothy what to do, but he's providing the basis for it. So first off, he's invoking both God and Christ as the witnesses to what he is saying in order to show its weight. And then he points to the example of Jesus having stayed the course in his own confession before Pilate. And so verse 14 is the instruction to keep the doctrine and the practice contained in this letter unstained and free from reproach until the return of Christ. And we have this description then of who Christ is, who God is. He is the blessed and only sovereign. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light, and honor and dominion belong to him. And so the rationale of this whole passage could be summarized like this. False doctrine leads to ungodly living. You need to hold to sound doctrine and then live accordingly. And then lastly, we are to stay engaged in the fight and live life in light of eternity now, since we are all doing this for the glory of God. So we need to catch that picture of the glory of God. And that's why uh, this description of God uh, isn't just some kind of aside for interest's sake. This is actually the motivation. This is what undergirds the whole thing, uh, that we catch this image so that we can follow along, so we know where we're headed, just like the light in the desert for the Israelites. When Christ returns, we will see how momentary our struggles really were, and the reward will be so evident. In verses 17 through 19, it goes on, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so the issue of money has already been introduced Uh, Last week, at the the front part of this chapter, we saw more uh, instruction for the working man, the blue-collar man, the bond slave, uh, the person who maybe doesn't have as much, that he is to be content. He's instructed to be content. And now we have a picture of the rich man, the white-collar guy, possibly the slave master. Um, And, ironically, in this context, the Gnostics were getting rich by teaching their false doctrine, which the reason that's ironic is because their false doctrine was all about denying yourself uh, every good gift that God has put in creation. 
And so it's somewhat ironic that they're getting rich teaching a gospel of self-sacrifice, in a sense. That is ironic, but this is what was happening in the church, and we talked about that. The alternative gospels that we find uh, today, whether it be the prosperity gospel or the poverty gospel, both are false. So the counter-instructions here for the true Christians in the church wasn't that the rich men need to get rid of all their money so that they can become poor because poverty is next to godliness. That's not the instruction. The instruction is that in the providence of God, there are going to be people in the church who are wealthy, who have more. And they are not to use their wealth to give them an unfair advantage in the church or to see themselves better than others in the church. That would lead to infighting and to uh, prideful attitudes that are disruptive to the church. But rather, they are instructed intentionally not to take on an air of self-sufficiency. Their riches are a gift from God which is consistent with how God has blessed his people in the past, right? And, and you might say, well, yeah, but I worked hard for that money. It's not a gift from God. Well, okay, where did your ability to work hard come from? Where did your hands come from? Where did your business acumen come from? Where did your customers come from? Okay, where did the circumstance that you live in an environment where uh, economic development is possible? Where did that all come from? It's a gift from God. And God uh, warns the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8 about once you're rich, once you're in the land I've given you and everything is going great, don't say to yourself, I got myself this wealth with my hands. Okay? Yes, your hands were involved because God uses means. But God gave you those hands. He gave you this land. He gave you every good blessing. So even if our riches are the result of our work, thanks still belongs to God, not just for the ends, but also for the means by which we were able to get that money out of the ground. It's all from God, and it's all designed to go back to him. So the wealthy in the church have an advantage that they can use for the good of the kingdom. So rather than wasting this on themselves or in self-sufficient thinking, uh, use this for the good of the kingdom. They have the financial resources to bless others with. But many, especially in the time of Timothy, Uh, who were rich, would have had sufficient wealth that they didn't need to work anymore. There was a whole class in society uh, that didn't have to work. Uh, In fact, the Pharisees, we we sometimes think of them as priests, and in one sense they kind of were, but really a a better picture of the Pharisees in our own time wouldn't be the clergy. It would be the rich businessmen who owned the clergy. That's a picture of the Pharisee. These people were rich enough to own books uh, and to maneuver clergy to to their benefit, to their advantage. Okay, and so here the instruction is the exact opposite. If you have the means to not work, if you're, if you're blessed enough that you don't have to work, then use your time and use your resources to bless others in God's house. Use it for the advantage of the kingdom. And so these rich, if they are following this, by their actions they are showing that they are doing just what Paul has commanded and taking hold of the eternal life which God gave them at their conversion. Their generosity is demonstrating the truth of verse 7 in this passage that we bring nothing into the world and that we can take nothing out of the world when we die. And so the mindset that's being promoted here uh, can be summed up well by uh, the the fairly well-known and fairly recent missionary, uh, Jim Elliott, and you've maybe heard this quote, talking about giving up everything in the West here for the sake of missions, and he actually died on the mission field. He was murdered. And he says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is godly wisdom. You can't keep it anyway. May as well use it for the benefit of Christ's kingdom. And then lastly, in verses 20 and 21, Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. 
Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. God be with you. Grace be with you. As Paul signs off, he stresses again the need to guard and teach the message. And this, of course, is applicable for us here as well. Every generation seems to think that it needs to adjust the message of Christianity or else it will fade off into irrelevance. And we talked about that at Sunday school this morning a little bit. Uh, The temptation is always, well, here's the biblical standard. Here's where our culture is. We won't reach them unless we spice up the Christian message. Okay? But that never works. The mainline churches in the early 1900s that adopted theological liberalism in order to reach the world and the world's philosophies have slowly but surely died a well-deserved death over the last century. Today, those that are left tend to be attended by a small handful of seniors who remember the glory days, and these churches often end up being sold and converted into coffee shops or art studios or apartments. And in one sense, of course, this is very sad. But in another sense, if there's churches that are naming the name of Christ without teaching his saving gospel, it's a blessing if these churches are shutting their doors and losing their platform. We've seen the same thing in more recent times. If you're roughly in my age range, you'll remember the seeker-sensitive movement, right? Just just water the message of the gospel down, uh, do a demographic survey of your city, and then build a church according to what people's felt needs are. Preach according to felt needs. Biblical exposition is out, felt needs are in. And then came the emerging church, maybe 15 years ago, same thing. The marketplace is changing, the message of the church needs to change. But both of these things were essentially designed to get the church to cater to what they saw was a changing marketplace. And both approaches have been noted for drifting away from the mission of God. And this is why, if you're under 30 and you're here this morning, hearing about the emerging church or the seeker-sensitive movement probably means nothing to you, because that's how short-lived it was. It's gone already. It has no staying power because it's unfaithful to the word of God. And these things are behind us now. But, as these things always do, it's being resurrected out of the garbage dump and given a fresh coat of paint, yet again, to make it shiny and new and exciting for the next crop of young people, in the form of the woke church today, or progressive Christianity. And I will be the first to say I have no prophetic insight. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, and I've never even played one on TV. But, if you're thinking about woke or progressive Christianity, I will save you a decade of your life and tell you that it ends the same way. Okay? It hasn't ended yet, and yet in the counsel of God it has ended already. There is no future in altering the gospel. There's no future in creating a church mission or a church program that is contrary or different from the word of God. So we should never get bored with the fact that the message of Christianity really hasn't changed in 2,000 years since Paul wrote this letter to Timothy and told him to guard the faith. Among those churches that have stayed orthodox and true and committed to the scriptures, there is a sense in which progress and advance are possible. Okay, and think about the the advance we've made from the days of Timothy. So not only has the church grown from a, a ragtag group of 11 misfits who had no seminaries, no Bibles, no missions agencies, and no financial resources, now their gospel has penetrated every inhabited continent on earth, And 40% of the world's population names the name of Jesus. Of course, those aren't all true professors. uh, But that's significant advance in a mere 50 generations from the time of Christ. 
Now think about that type of advance and then think, we, we read in the Ten Commandments this morning, what if God is faithful to a thousand generations? If this has happened in 50 generations, imagine if God holds his word and he's faithful to a thousand generations. We keep fighting uh, with the same gospel message. We shouldn't get bored. We keep doing what we're doing. We keep doing as we're instructed, whether we're living in an age of advance or of decline as we seem to be currently. We have to stay on mission. The mission doesn't change because the circumstances do. We're called to be ambassadors, which means that we act on behalf of another. We don't have the liberty to change the message, only to announce the message uh, that our envoy uh, sent us. We don't own the gospel, we don't own Christian doctrine, and so we have no right to tinker with it or play with it. So is progress and increased clarity over time possible? Yes, for sure. But altering and editing are by no means permissible. So in guarding this deposit that is handed down from Christ and the apostles, there is the complementary duty to avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Here's an interesting turn of phrase. Does everyone know where the word babble comes from? Comes from Babel. <laughs> comes from Babel, right? Men building up their empires to reach heaven, to be like God, and God confuses them with language. Okay, so this is irreverent babble, is building our empires, building our kingdoms, thinking that we too can be God. And then what is falsely called knowledge in quotations. And the word knowledge in Greek here is gnosis, which literally means uh, knowledge, but it's also the, the word from which the Gnostic heresy got its cult. Secret knowledge, mystical knowledge. Okay, and we still use the word gnosis today, right? If you go to the doctor and you ask for a prognosis, a prognosis, Tell me beforehand what your knowledge is of the, the outcome of this. That is a prognosis. This is the word knowledge. But the religion that was present in the church was about secret mystical knowledge. And because it was rooted in private visions and ecstatic prayer experiences and ecstatic prayer languages and not in the objective standard of the revelation of Scripture, it's not uh, surprising that there were contradictions present among those who practiced this. And this temptation is also present in our time. Uh, just like the message to update the Bible is present, the, the temptation to get into ourself with you know, what's really popular in our time is trying to blend Eastern mysticism with Christianity. So we end up with things like labyrinths and weird meditation techniques and contemplative or listening prayer or emotionally manipulative worship practices. This isn't Christianity this is bringing uh, Eastern mysticism into Christianity. Okay, So we don't want emotionally manipulative, self-centered stuff. We want the objective standard of the word of God. And the reminder is the same for us. We have to stay on course. Because the default is to swerve from the faith. We finally had a chance to till our garden this week. It was wet. Finally till the garden. And there's a bunch of weeds in there that I don't remember planting. Okay? Uh, and if your garden is like ours, it's the same thing. You don't remember planting those weeds. Why? Because weeds come on their own. Sin comes on its own. Drift comes on its own. Adjusting the gospel message comes on its own. What takes effort is staying to the standard, staying between, uh, between the guardrails. That's what takes effort. It takes constant effort to have a fruitful garden. The weeds come on their own, just like sin comes on its own. So if we think we're just going to start off on the right path and then we can take our hands off the wheel, it will not end well. You have to be always committed to putting sin to death in your life uh, and as a church to constantly be unrelenting 
in our commitment to teach God's word and to stay on the course. And by God's grace, we can give the vigilance and the attention to our own lives and to our church generally, which is why it's fitting that Paul signs off on a note of grace being given to the church. The final note here is that of grace. Because even our ability uh, to discern and then to act on uh, what we know to be true, that is a gift of grace. Again, we can't whip ourselves up into this. God has to give us the hands to do this, the mind to do this, and the resolve to do it. And we are to do it. And so here we are, living at the time and in the place that we do. And just like every generation that's come before us, there are challenges. There are sins which are culturally acceptable. There are Christians and there are churches that are fast asleep, and some of them are so fast asleep that they don't even believe you if you tell them that they are fast asleep. That's how deep the slumber is. We may all be guilty of that. But while it's easy to lose heart, there is no need. Our particular challenges are unique to us. But as you see, even in the first century, even when there's apostles walking the earth, there's still problems. Problems are not new. Challenges are not new. Okay? So, in one sense, you can cheer up because it's far worse than you thought it was, right? So put a smile on your face. It's always been this bad. But we're part of a new church plan here that all of us want to see thriving. We want to see uh, our friends do well. We want to see families growing spiritually and growing in godliness. We want to see our grandchildren growing deeper with the Lord. And some of us don't even have grandchildren, but we still wish that for them. And so we need to take steps now for future generations, We need to think long-term. And, as they always have, the idols of our culture have been trying to raise themselves up on their tiptoes and puff up their chest to scare us, to intimidate us, to shutting our mouths, to stop worshipping. And what are we to do? Well, really the same as what Paul instructed Timothy. In many ways, the way forward is the way back. Back to the gospel which was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't need new tricks. We don't need gimmicks. We need a gospel that has the power of God in it to break away the stony hearts and replace them with fresh, living hearts of flesh that desire to serve the Lord. We need fathers, and especially on Father's Day, but always. We need fathers who act like men, actual men. We need women who are wise and resilient and creative in their own unique, gloriously feminine ways. And we need churches who don't care about any demands that are placed on them other than the demands of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And for this to happen, everyone in this room needs to be animated and gripped by a vision of who God is so that we know uh, what the fuel is to get us there, what the prize is, is God himself. God is the prize of creation. Being in his presence with him is the goal. And so to catch a vision for us, for your own life, or for your participation in this church, or in your family, or anywhere else, let's go back to verse 15, and look at the description of this God who is the prize of all creation. It says, he is blessed and the only sovereign. So Jesus Christ is not just the Son of God, but he is also God the Son. He is God himself. He is the anointed one. He is God in the flesh. And he has been blessed by the Father and invested with all the sovereignty that that implies. Okay, so this means he's not some passive observer who's limited in his foreknowledge to learning about history before we got there and then telling us how things go, hoping it will turn out. He's not someone who's watching a football game, hoping it goes his way. And he's not playing 
chess against his enemies, always just barely one move ahead, and then when he gets uh, outmaneuvered, then he has to think of a new strategy. He's not some wimpy deity like that. He is God. He's the storyteller, and when he's playing a game of chess with his enemies, he's controlling both sides of the board. And not only that, he's exercising control of the other side of the board by exercising control over the opponent on the other side of the board, so he moves his pieces exactly where the Lord Jesus wants them. That's sovereignty. That is the power of God. He's a storyteller. His foreknowledge is not based on watching the movie of history before we got there, but of writing the story of history. He knows it like a storyteller, not like an observer. He's in the football game, ensuring that all the moves happen at the right time to get the outcome that he desires. He's moving the pieces always to his glory. Just like in Jeremiah 25, when you read uh, about... You know, God is fed up with the sin in Israel. And so he whistles for a king of the north. He whistles for Nebuchadnezzar and sends him down as his arm of judgment. Nebuchadnezzar has no idea that he's God's chess piece. He just sees land and cattle that he wants. So he just comes acting on his sinful impulses, not knowing it's God who sent him there. And then after this is done, read this in Jeremiah 25. It, it'll make your skin tingle. Then after Nebuchadnezzar has done God's work of punishing Israel for their iniquity... He says, look at what you have done. I am going to come down on you like a ton of bricks for what you just did to my people. Those are my people, and you harmed them. Now pay the price. That is a sovereign God whose ways are too great for us. The king's heart is like a stream in the hands of God. He turns it wherever he wants. Nebuchadnezzar, no piece on the chessboard has any idea uh, that they are being used by God, uh, even though they move themselves in another sense. It's all God's story. God is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he stands above the most powerful men on the earth, and he laughs at them in Psalm 2. And when the nations rage and start their war against God, he shatters them into a million little pieces with his rod of iron like a clay pot. When the prophet Daniel sees God's kingdom coming down and the stone hitting the statue of man's kingdoms and bringing them to nothing so that this new kingdom of God can take root, we see that he is establishing everlasting rule on this earth. So the kings of this earth may try to build their kingdoms and their empires now, but they will not succeed because Christ has ascended back to heaven and is at the right hand of his father, putting all these enemies under his feet until the end of history. Then it says, He alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever nor can ever see. Kings and kingdoms rise and fall, and in Acts it says that God has sent the boundary for every nation, and then he redraws it, and then he takes it off the map completely and lets another take his place. He is the ancient of days who is purely satisfied in being God. He doesn't need creation. He's God. He was happy being himself before we showed up. Creation is an overflow of his self-love. He doesn't need us. Uh, We need him. That's what we're here for, is to glorify him. This is the same God who, when Moses asks for a little glimpse of him, God hides Moses in a rock, covers it, and then shows him his backward parts, and the glory is so much that when the people see Moses' face, it hurts. That is the God we are dealing with. That's the God we need to see. And then when man and beast touch the mountain, when God is sitting there thundering his law, and a man or a beast touches that mountain, don't even kill him with your hands. Kill him with rocks or arrows because you don't touch God's glory cloud. And you don't touch people who have touched God's glory cloud. That's the God who we are dealing with. 
This is the God who turns the lights off and makes it thunder when his son dies. And he tears the veil in the temple in half. And then just like Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 24, he comes back and destroys the entire city with its temple to remind him that he is the God of the earth. And he will shake once more all those things which can be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. His kingdom remains. And according to Romans 2, this is also the God who is storing up wrath against the ungodly until all their iniquities are complete. And then he sends his wrath as flaming hailstones and white-hot anger so people will beg to die, but they can't. And this is the same God who sent his son to take this punishment on himself so that all these wicked people, guilty of all these wicked things, can kiss the son and be forgiven so that they can enjoy God forever in eternity, this thrice holy God. And then it says, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Remember, this is the God who tasked our first parents with exercising dominion over the creation, and then when they failed, he cursed the creation with thorns and thistles and evil kingdoms and evil empires. But then, slowly but surely, starting with one family of eight on an ark, and then gradually expanding into tribes, and then those tribes taking a promised land, and then nations, and finally Christ's kingdom now, this same God, through his Son, has been reestablishing his dominion over this fallen world. Christ came and earned the righteousness that Adam lost, and ever since then, the kingdom has been announcing and spreading the knowledge of God across the earth as the waters cover the deep, as the Old Testament prophets assert. And so this ascended Christ, who is now ruling and reigning over all men, all kingdoms, all beasts, whether righteous or wicked, and ensuring that his will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven, is putting his enemies under his feet, just like his grandfather and his son David put the head of the giant under his foot. So now Christ too has ensured that all of world history is a history of him exercising his dominion. And he's doing this through the church. He's doing this through us. And our job is to proclaim the glory and the dominion of Jesus Christ until he returns. This is what Trinity Fellowship exists for, and this is what you exist for, to make Christ known to everyone, to make him known to the nations, to invite them in to this victorious kingdom. That's what we're here for, and may we never lose that vision. And if you're tempted to, please look at a vision of God in Scripture. This is the one who made us, From him, through him, to him are all things. And with that, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us instructions for how to conduct our affairs here on earth, whether in our personal lives, whether in our families, or whether in a church, whether through world missions. Lord, wherever you send us, uh, the message is clear. Lord, and we cannot pull this mission off on our own. We need you, we need your spirit enabling us, fueling us. Lord, and most importantly, we need to see a picture of you as the prize of all creation. Lord, that when we get discouraged, when we can't take another step, or so we think, that we see you for who you are, that we see the story that you are telling in your creation, uh, and then we would pick up our part in the chapter happily, knowing that all the pieces are moving ultimately to your glory. Lord, help us to remain faithful. I pray for each one here. I pray especially for fathers this morning, but really for everyone, from little child to old senior. 
Lord, give us a vision of who you are. Give us a taste so that we can take that next step and that we would continue to put sin to death and to grow in the knowledge and the glory and honor of your name. Amen. So the charge is this. Our job as Christians in a fallen world is to take part in God's work of reversing the curse. We are to do this as we reject false doctrine and ungodly living and turn our attention to the righteousness offered through the gospel of Christ. We are to live in light of eternity, staying on mission until Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. We are to use every tool God has put in our hand to display his glory and to advance his kingdom purposes. And we cannot do this by moral admonitions, positive self-talk, or by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. The only way we can persevere is by taking hold of the eternal life we have been given by pure grace so we can see God as he truly is, sovereign, immortal, and dwelling in unapproachable light, King of the kings and Lord of the lords. To him be honor and glory and eternal dominion. Amen. And I'll leave you with the benediction from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So receive the benediction. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And go in peace.